Welcome to the ED Gym. Hey guys, I am super pumped to be running the ED Gym today. This week we're chatting to Christian Wright. Christian is an absolute legend. Christian is up in the Northern Territory, um, looking after people left, right, and center. This guy is got a crazy story. Um, we're calling this episode Crossbows and Snake Bites. Um, so get ready, um, hold on to your hats, and let's crack into the podcast. Um, make sure you subscribe um, to iTunes or Spotify, um, and we'll crack into the content. Remember to look at the show notes below for any information, um, articles, books, that'll all be in the show notes. So guys, let's get ready to crack in. Here we go. So um, Christian, mate, welcome to the show. Hey man, thanks for having me. Dude, I'm so pumped, mate. And, um, I'm, I'm sure the listeners want to know, who is Christian Wright? Um, talk to me about who you are, mate, and um, yeah, and where are you? Right on. Uh, well, I'm a registered nurse and a registered midwife, and I'm currently somewhere in a remote Northern Territory. Okay. Location unknown, we'll say, Christian. Yeah, unknown, but as remote as you can get. <laughs> as remote as you can get. We can tell by the Wi-Fi we're remote. Now, mate, um, number one, why did, you, why, why did you do emergency or why did you get into emergency um, I actually, when I was a little boy, I actually had a spiritual experience where I just felt directed towards uh, working in the developing world or the remote worlds that are around. And um, and I don't know, just since then, I just knew what I had to do. And I put together a, a, a rough 10-year-ish plan of things that um, uh, I had to skill up in. I went to others who'd gone before me and said, oh, what do you reckon's needed? And they gave me a whole list of areas. And so one by one, I've just been working through them, studying different disciplines and uh, trying to skill up so that uh, my ultimate goal would be to live in a community somewhere long term and, you know, invest and so into that community, become part of them and do, you know, a whole whole plethora of emergency medicine to midwifery to, you know, whatever's needed really and just work with them alongside them. You've all, have you always lived out there or have you lived somewhere else? Oh, right. I, well, I grew up in the bush in uh, south of Sydney, Yeah, right on the beach and uh, surfing and, um, you know, just chilling out there. Yeah. And as I've been studying different things, it's taken me across Australia to different areas. And um, I even went to the UK when I did my Diploma of Tropical Diseases. And yep. um, so I've, I've had restless feet. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> you like and to move around. Back into the remote world, I guess, um, in, um, in the Northern Territory. Um, and Christian, what else do you like to do, mate? What gets you fired up? What do you, you know, medicine's obviously interesting, being a midwife, being a nurse, working in emergency, tropical diseases, but what else fires up Christian, right? What do you like to do? Oh, well, um, I guess it's uh, always good to pick up new hobbies. At the moment, I'm big into hunting, so yeah. we go, uh, might be just going out to catch local, you know, mud crabs with our Rio out of their holes yeah. or buffalo. Or um, we'll go out diving, um, fishing. Up up here in the uh, Northern Territory, I can tell you yeah. that fish sing for hooks. Every time I look at your social media, it's you and a huge fish or a huge lobster, mate. So I'm keen to get up there and try some um, Northern Territory cuisine, mate. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it makes it more exciting because while you're hunting, you're being hunted. There's a lot of crocs and uh, sharks. <laughs> are you always looking over your shoulder, mate? Yeah, you are, you are. <laughs> <laughs> now, Christian, you've, where have you worked, mate? You've worked as an, a, an emergency nurse, I imagine, first. Where did you, you go from there? So I started um, doing a bit of just, you know, general surgical and ward nursing. Then I went into emergency nursing. 
and at a, at a big trauma center in Sydney. And then I went into pediatric to get my head around that, pediatric emergency nursing. Uh, and then I went and studied uh, tropical diseases in the UK. Yeah. Uh, I was also went to South Australia and did some international health and development and did a, um, some work with them in East Timor in the villages there. And then uh, I went to WA and became a midwife and did my master's in that. Um, and, and to be honest, I thought I was just going to get my ticket and then nick off. Yeah. But I'm in love with it. That is the hands down the best job I've ever had. Um, and so I couldn't help myself. I stayed there for about four or five years. Um, and I even did a bit of research and published. Um, I've got published a few articles um, on some stuff around that. And particularly the way that men are involved in midwifery and how we look after the male partners as well. And then after that, the next on the list was to go and work in remote. And um, because that's a whole different kettle of fish there. Yeah, and we'll get into that. And I'll make sure I'll attach in the show notes um, those publications that you've done, mate. They're a good read. You're, you're a nurse, like me, a male nurse. And yep. then you're also a midwife. I don't know what the term is for male midwives. Why midwifery? What was the, you know, very interesting being a minority, being a male as a nurse and then also being a midwife. Um, how did you go with that, mate? Uh, well, the, to answer the first one, um, I probably wasn't going to do it because I thought, uh, oh, maybe it is more of a women's domain. It is kind of the last bastion for women in terms of careers. But uh, when I looked into, in particular, Papua New Guinea, um, I just looked at the maternal mortality rate and it floored me. And worldwide, mm -hmm. uh, this was years ago, it was um, 300,000 women die every year um, from easily preventable complications to do with birth. And 99% of those deaths are in developing countries. So I thought, I need to learn this. I need to do something about it. Um, I need to ready myself. And so I packed what I could fit into my high ace van. I drove across an Alibor um, and enrolled in a master's. I didn't even have anywhere to live at the time. <laughs> mate, all remote nurses or um, doctors need a troopy, mate. That's it. The only thing that survives in the desert. Can you tell me a little bit about what the job entails, what your job entails currently? Um, I've got a bit of a unique um, situation at the moment where um, I work some of the time in a in a town so there's a lot of kind of infrastructure here and there's a small regional hospital and i'll work in the emergency department there and in the maternity ward and i've just started doing a little bit of theaters there they've yep. got a very small theater um but then i get flown out to remote communities where you know very tiny small um aboriginal populations and they have a clinic and that's that's the remote of the remote and you become a and out there you work in a clinic and basically usually during the day you work a bit like a GP. You um, call people out of the waiting room, um, you have a chat with them, you sort out their problems and uh, their medical issues, their medications, um, you're doing blood tests and, and kind of point of care testing. But then you might get an emergency, you know, you might there might be a rollover in a troopie with, you know, that's packed to the brim. So you go out there and um, you're, you're kind of doing a an emergency, managing an emergency situation out there and then and transporting them back and you're calling the, the care flight or the Royal Flying Doctors and they're coming in and you're organising transfers to a, to a larger hospital. Uh, and also during the night you're on call. So you might get a call in the middle of the night um, where it might be just a child who's struggling to breathe from, you know, a bronch or a croup or, um, you know, some sort of fever situation to, yeah, another emergency. Someone's unfortunately been stabbed with a spear or slashed with a bottle and you've got to go in there and stop the bleeding, suit to them and 
stabilise and, if appropriate, transfer to another hospital. Mate, run me through just a, we'll go simple to complex, run me through a, a simple, I don't know, laceration, mate. What, what happens, you know, you've got someone who's come in who's been stabbed with a bottle that's a closable laceration. What do you do? In your, and what, what resources would you use to sort of fix that? Well, you have a lot of autonomy out there. It's not all cowboy. You, you yep. follow strict policies and procedures, and we yep. follow um, a CARPA manual, which is like a, we call it the Bible for remote, and you follow. It tells you what antibiotics to give, what size sutures to use on, the, on an ear that's fallen off. On, you know, it tells you everything in detail and when to refer and when it's out of your scope of practice. But you, you do get a lot, of, a lot more responsibility out there. Yep. Um, and so I remember there was two um, older women who got into a fight over a younger man and um, one of them um, punched the other. And so the other one picked up her boot and, 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 and um, <laughs> clocked the one in her pacemaker. And so she dropped to the ground no. and when she, she got a brick and took it over the other lady's head, oh. which right open. And so those, both those came into the clinic. So straight away you're managing... Um, someone who's in an arrhythmia and losing consciousness. Um, so, you, so you've got one nurse um, managing that with a, a defib standing by um, and talking to uh, a doctor over the phone. And and I had the other lady and her her scalp was split right open to the skull. Yeah. She was conscious, so you know, just putting pressure on the bleeding. And then I had to get a clean fingered, um, a clean gloved hand with my finger and run along the skull to make sure there was no fractures. And yeah. when I was happy with that, you know, a bit of a washout, and then I just sewed her scalp back together. Wow. Yeah, or, or staple it, whatever you prefer. <laughs> yeah, you know, whatever. You've got, mate, like a bit of cougar wrestling, and then you're just there suturing a skull up, mate, and tactic. I tell you, I've never, I've never run my finger over a skull before while the person's looking at me. whole other situation where you've got someone who's got a pacemaker and is in an arrhythmia. And we're dealing with a potential arrest, you know, bradyarrhythmia, um, arrest situation with call, calling in um, a care flight. Um, plane medical evacuation and then on top of that because they were fighting and creating commotion you've got the police in there um, yep. and trying to um, bring peace as well and working alongside you and then you've got the community upset outside banging wanting to get in and so you've got to recognize that element as well cross-culturally mate um, as an emergency nurse and um, you know working in in these communities up in the territory or anywhere um, mm. how do you approach you know, being, a, you know, a, um, you know, an Anglo-Saxon guy, how do you approach that cross-cultural um, barrier? And, and what are some things we could learn as clinicians? Uh, I would say, hands down, the very first thing you need to do and keep doing is learn language. You don't have to learn the whole lot, just learn basics. Get yourself a piece of paper and every time you meet a patient or if you've got time to sit outside with the community, you sit down and you ask them different keywords. How do you say this? How do you say please and thank you? Just start with that yeah. and, and pronounce it and write it in your own phonetical spelling so that you can learn the basics and slowly that list will build up. And by showing the people that you're trying to learn their language and understand their language, you're immediately getting context, you're earning respect, um, you're, you're getting understanding for yourself. And from there, you start to learn cultural things. For example, you know, it's inappropriate to talk about, um, if you're a man, to talk about uh, a woman's urinary situations or if she's got dysuria in, in a man to woman or a woman, a female nurse, it's inappropriate to ask a man about how his, you know, his uh, bowel habits are. And you learn these little, little key things that are very important to them 
Um, and that extends out um, in my midwifery, for example, it's inappropriate, very inappropriate, I nearly got slapped the first time I made this mistake, to use the word for vagina, um, but for me to say that. But I learned the way of saying um, a baby house. Um, and when I say that, when I approach in, and in midwifery, if I'm, I need to go to that area or talk about it, I use that word and they have this admiration because they can see I'm trying and I'm using an appropriate word. Or if I am asking sensitive questions as a guy, I'll say, look, I have to ask you a sensitive question now. I put my head down near their ear so we're not making eye contact. I ask my question very quietly, almost in a whisper. And sometimes I'll wait two minutes and then I'll get a yes or a no. You know, and they and that's a really respectful way of getting around some of those barriers. Christian, and did you just learn that by um, like you know, tra- not being rude, trial error, like doing the wrong thing and then going, okay, I don't do this, I should do this, or was that just contextual, being there and saying, asking people in the community, hey, what do I do in this situation, or other practitioners? Most of it's failures, mate, and most right. of it. <laughs> But you do, there's people who've gone before you and I always drill them and the, and the nurses and doctors who have been there and I ask them and, you know, I get a lot of that advice off them as well. And, um, and when you're learning language, you know, that was, um, you know, if I can't say this, how can I ask this question? You know, for someone you've earned a bit of respect with, usually an older person in the community, and they'll say, oh, just use this word, you know, use baby house or, uh, or say this or that, you know, when in language. But um, the language gets you a lot further than many others straight away. And I imagine because of the people groups throughout the Torres Strait um, region that there would be different dialects, maybe different uh, nuances of, of a language um, that you may have to adjust. Is that correct? Or Yeah. So in the last year, I've had to learn the basics of three different languages. Wow. And then the main one that I'm around has, <laughs> I think, three main dialects that are all slightly different. And one of those actually has a... They're called Moedis, but um, you... There's a word, there's two words for everything. So a tree has two words and you've got to know which one to use for it. So it it gets complicated, but if you stick with just the basics and you're trying to understand, they'll help you along and, um, and, uh, and you'll get far. Um, How do you approach those sort of things, Christian? Um, Knowing that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people do die at a younger age, those sort of things. It's probably very a disheartening thing. You know, the gap, it's not, it's not getting shorter. We talk about the gap. Yep. Uh, it's widening still, um, and there's a sense with the gap, you know, as um, as a speaking for myself as a white practitioner, yep. um, very privileged. I guess even hearing about the gap for the first time, you know, and we're talking about the gap between um, Aboriginal people and and non-Aboriginal people in Australia, um, and it's when if I spoke to you about the gap, the first thing you'd think about would probably be you know life expectancy. For them, they don't care about that. That's not their main concern. They just want to be as healthy as we are right now or um, have, have the benefits of health that they perceive us to have right now and quality of life right now. That's the gap that they see. When I first thought of the gap, I thought of like, oh, that's it. We need to bring them to where I am. Mm. But I think the key perhaps or a different way of thinking about it um, from what I've experienced is instead for me to jump into the gap and mm. meet them where they are, you okay. know, what that looks like and trying to figure out what that looks like. But specifically, yeah, they, they suffer, for example, rheumatic heart disease. That's something that's been eradicated in um, non-Aboriginal Australian and Western populations. But for them, with the, the, there's like 10 people in a house, there's a bit of, a lot of overcrowding and, um, and that 
create sanitation issues, especially when things in the house start breaking down, like sinks and toilets. RHD is rife, and it's and it's a terrible scar mm. in, uh, in Australia that we still haven't fixed. And it's um, yeah, and unfortunately, it means things um, that. For example, if you're under 20 and you get a sore throat, you get a simple um, staph infection, that'll damage the valves in your heart and you'll die at a much younger age. You To prevent that, you need a needle with this thick syrup in your bum every 23 days or so. Can you imagine a teenager agreeing to show up every 23 days to a clinic to get a very painful injection that hurts like anything at the time, and then you can't sit down for a few days after. You can imagine the compliance rates for that are not not great. But yeah, so you've got to, there's a lot of um, education. You need to prepare yourself to learn these things and understand these complex issues that are not just health issues, but they're um, living issues. They're um, how their communities and societies function. You need to learn that and try and get a grapple on that and continue to try and understand how to approach that from different angles. Wow. So. And that's just one health issue. I mean, if COVID does get into these remote communities, there will be absolute devastation. When yeah. SARS got into these communities years ago, the mortality rate was much higher for these people than it was for the rest of the non-Aboriginal Australia. As a clinician, are you just teaching people with COVID just those basic sort of principles of hand hygiene, um, you know, covering your cough, those sort of things? Well, again, that's difficult when you've got... Um, 10 or more people living in a house and the individual is not the primary concern for them. It's the family. They're a collective culture. Yeah. Yeah. They will drop everything and walk away from a perfectly good job if, if they have to look after a family member because the family comes first and the community comes first. That's to what they belong. Mm. Uh, so you've got people in a house. You can't self-isolate. Yep. And what if the sinks are broken or the toilet's broken yep. or... You know, do, do all 10 or so people go to the next house where there's another 10 people where the plumbing may not be as good either? What would be your um, advice for um, working in an ED where we do have an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander um, person who's come in to understand those cultural um, barriers to be aware of? What, what, could you, what advice could you give, Christian? Uh, I think if it's a one-off, um, get it, find out where they're from and get a yeah. translator that's, that speaks that dialect. Because you have to remember, they'll know five or six languages and English will be one of the later ones. Yeah, cool. Even if they appear to have really good English, they won't be able to understand the complex. We have a higher level English yep. that we've grown up in that's, that's really complex with medical concepts that are really important that may go over their head and they may just, and it's very common for them just to say yes and agree because they think that's what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. So find an interpreter straight away or ask, ask them first, obviously, if they would like one and, and encourage them to bring a family member or someone who can help them so they can discuss decisions. And when you bring them a choice or a medical decision, let them talk about it for a while first. Okay. Um, that would be my first step. And if, they, if you have a regular um, Aboriginal population in, around your hospital that present, I would do what I could to learn some of the basics of their language and culture and know what's appropriate, not appropriate. Um, and remember that it's unusual for them to be all on their own in a foreign environment. So encourage them to have family members with them. Yeah, Unless it's a sensitive issue, then yeah, that's fine. They want to be on their own. And always give them time. You know, don't 
with us, we, we ask a question and expect a yes or no straight away. Give them time to process what you've asked and think about it before they get back to you. Good to know, especially when you're working in EDs and all you're focusing on is four-hour rules. Um, and then you need to learn how to slow down. Um, and whether it's contacting that um, Aboriginal liaison officer or, you know, like you said, getting um, understanding the language or getting support um, at persons in, I think that's a great piece of advice, mate. You know, you're sitting in your clinic and then the phone calls or you're having to sleep and your phone calls and it's, you know, someone who's had some... Because I'm assuming trauma is quite extensive in the Territory. Um, talk to me about the more complex, um, you know, patient. Mm. Um, all right, I'll give you two. One was on my first day in one particular remote community um, around three in the afternoon. There was a, a riot. This particular community was one of the last ones to outlaw traditional spearing. And all of a sudden, a riot had flared up because some boys from another community had come in by boat and they were ready to have a have a bashing, as they call it. Yeah. Things escalated to from spears to machetes, and then some boys pulled out crossbows and started firing, you know, indiscriminately into the crowd. And unfortunately, um, so we went straight into lockdown. Like we locked down the clinic, and um, there was only one policeman in the town, so he barricaded himself in. But then yeah. someone showed up banging on the door. A woman had been shot with a crossbow, and the bolt went through her arm and into her chest. Oh, dude! And. Uh, and so she rocked up and um, I was in charge of that. So we, we moved her through to our ED room. Yep. And I can tell you, um, it's just ABC. You've got to go straight back to what you know. Yep. It's ABC. Um, so I had one, uh, I was assessing airway. She had equal, uh, her airway was patent, talked to me, um, and her breathing. Obviously, I was scared of a, a pneumothorax. And so um, there was no tracheal deviation. There was equal air entry on auscultation. Um, but she had this bolt sticking straight into her chest. <laughs> and so I had my 14-gauge um, cannula ready, you know, hovering above her, ready to decompress the chest if that was needed. Um, meanwhile, I had my other uh, nurse was ringing up um, and ordering, because straight away we knew where this was going. She needed to be airlifted out of there. And so we were calling medical evacuation. Um, and we had someone else calling our, for safety, of course, our district manager and letting them aware of the situation, organising security, we need more police in. And we can still hear things, you know, hitting the clinic and um, the noises outside, but we were safe. And because uh, we were safe, that's first, danger, we'd sorted that, now we were responding to the patient. And uh, we just kept going through our ABCs while we're waiting for the, the aeroplane to come in. But unfortunately, they couldn't land, you see, because... Uh, there was no one to escort them safely from the airstrip. <laughs> this, this plane's circling for a bit, but they had to go back. So see you later. Mm -hmm. um, have to manage the situation on our own. So we put together a few plans. Okay, what happens if we, if we obviously we can't intubate there. There was just a couple of us nurses, um, and that's not um, in our scope of practice. But we could manage an airway, you know, with LMAs and bag and mask, and we had oxygen, we had other stuff. Uh, we'd, and so we'd put wide bore cannulas in, um, We've, we've had everything. We've got the defib there. We've got everything ready, you know, in case this goes south. Um, but we're still going back through. Every few minutes, we're going back through our ABCs. And she's just happily chatting to us. So we're, we're, we're good at the moment. Uh, and eventually, what they did, they sent in some, I guess, some, I have to be careful what I say, but it was in the news. Mm. So I guess I can say they sent in some people that were higher, higher pay grade than the police. And yep. they came and... and and calmed the situation very swiftly. And yeah. then the came in 
Um, and then we had a, another aeromedical um, evacuation crew fly in from another area, from another city, and uh, they landed where the police were able to escort them to the clinic. And they quickly, they brought some doctors and so they quickly did a, an ultrasound on her and um, both lungs, they, you know, I think, I don't know if they believe me that both lungs were still patent and no pneumothorax, but um, that was true. You know, this arrow was four centimetres into the chest and that didn't puncture a lung. Um, and so, yeah, they evacuated her and uh, I got home after midnight, escorted by the police back to my place. And then the next morning, you know, I was walking to work, everything's calm again, everything's lovely, everyone's saying hi, waving to me. It's just the nature of it. Just so different, the contrast. And just, I think the great thing is that you just went back to your um, fundamentals or your basics, uh, your ABCD approach to um, medicine, which I think is really key, isn't it? Wherever you are, just don't don't forget the basics, you know? A mate of mine who's a crossbow enthusiast, and um, I asked him about the particular carbon fire arrow that was in her, and I was asked, because we wanted to cut it shorter, you know, to stop the wobbling. Yeah. yeah. We were worried that it would just shatter everywhere. And so I was ringing up mates asking their advice. Like, what do you reckon about this particular brand of arrow? And they're like, oh, you can cut through it. That's fine. So we did shorten the arrow and, and stabilize it at the wound. <laughs> awesome. And you're going to run us through another one, dude? Oh, yeah. Just uh, just quickly. Um, so I'm also the midwife out there. And uh, when I first got there, you know, one of the most more prominent women in the community said, shame, you're a man. Shame, you come to us. Um, and so I just let that run off my back and slowly over time, you know, I won them over. I, when I went out and caught fish, I drop off fish to all the houses, to all the pregnant women and made sure they got the fish. Um, I started holding outdoor meetings under the trees, some antenatal education and, uh, I won them over because it's the same principle in midwifery everywhere. It's about relationship, building trust and showing them that they can trust you. Um, as well as having that title of someone who's a health professional and, uh, it got, and to show what happened was at one of these women, she went into preterm labor and she was one of the ones that was, you know, scared to begin with. And she rang me up and said, there's water everywhere. And so I, you know, rushed around there. I grabbed the ambulance, rushed around, picked her up, took her back to the clinic, um, called some people in. And unfortunately, yeah, at about 24 weeks, she was four centimeters dilating. Um, and that, that baby was coming. So straight away, we're calling, again, area, um, medical evacuation because there's nothing we can do with that clinic. Yep. Um, otherwise, I'm managing a recess of a 24-week-old when it comes out and potentially with the woman as well. And I'm the only one, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately skilled in that. Um, and I I can tell you, it probably wouldn't be a good outcome. So yep. we're calling the area medical. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, putting in wide, wide uh, board cannulas. I'm talking to a doctor on the phone. We're giving her medication to try and stop the contractions, um, nifedipine. We're, we're doing everything we can, right? We're trying to keep her relaxed. And then when we got her into the ambulance and rushed out to the airstrip, it was a, ma it was a man that got off the plane, a male health professional doctor. And she turned to me and she said, I'm not getting on that plane. And I said, what's wrong? She goes, he's a man. I said, but, but I'm a man. She goes, yeah, but we trust you. You come and you deliver my baby. We want you. You come with us. So it just shows how, you know, when I got there, they told me it was shame that I was there as a man. And at the end, they didn't want anyone but me. And you know, she had my mobile. And so when she was causing a bit of trouble in Darwin, because of this cross-cultural, I guess I should say the staff were causing trouble because they weren't observing this, uh, the cross-cultural context, you know, and she was getting very upset. I was able to talk to her 
and she was ringing me at times to check on her father who needed a bit of extra care at home in his wheelchair. So I just rock up around their place, you know, move the horses and the dogs out of the way and go in and check on her father. And so that that was continuity of care relationship for anyone who's in midwifery knows about. And uh, and I was still managing that while she was away. So that and she was sending me photos and obviously she stayed a few months in Darwin with this neonate that was um, preterm. And when she came back, she came back to community and it was this beautiful celebration of her marching down the main street and everyone coming out to see this baby and, and her knowing, feeling safe while she was in an, an alien place, that her family were looked after. She trusted me to make sure her family were also being looked after. But you've also got to realise that community is number one for them. You know, they, they will put community before their own health. So you've got to manage that. Otherwise, she probably would have jumped on a bus with her preterm baby and nicked back to community to look after her father. As a clinician, we can be very focused on the patient and forget about the community. Um, for people that are midwives listening, um, wanting to do rural stuff, what would be your advice, Christian? I would say um, when, you, when you come out here, you've got many hats on. And so it would be in your interest to be well-rounded when you come out. Get a nursing degree as well. Um, get some other study under your belt. I mean, there are a lot of hoops to jump through to come out here. You've got to, you know, you've got to do a whole bunch of different courses because it is quite a remote place with a lot of responsibility. But um, I would say, yeah, get yourself well-rounded because so, you are wearing a lot of hats. And the last thing you want to do is come out here and be really good in one particular skill but then feel like you can't do anything in a critical situation if it's outside of your, your area that you're, you're proficient in. So you might be the best midwife in the world, but you come out here and, and what if, you know, um, what if you've got a situation with a crossbow, you know, and you're the only one there. <laughs> one of the most amazing midwives I've met out in remote. And she, she um, works primarily just as a midwife. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she's also a nurse, um, but she's amazing. And the reason why she's amazing is because not only is she good at her job and managing programs, she also happens to do the, the child health programs in one of the schools. But she, when she's clocked off work, she's out sitting with the community. She goes out fishing with the community. She's yeah. going to play football and sitting with the, um, with the women there, you know, and watching the footy with them. Uh, she's sitting by campfires in people's front lawns, you know, cooking um, pippies and, and mud mussels and just chatting. She's part of the community. So they all know her first name basis. They're mates with her. Um, and that's what makes her amazing. She's really in that community. So again, it's not just about a job. If you want to go out there, um, be prepared to invest in the community because you get, you don't want to be someone who hides away in the air conditioning, watching Foxtel, um, being coming part of the culture. Now, mate, being out in the remote areas, You've had a few encounters uh, and you've actually, our patient story, we normally run through a case of the week. Um, You actually were the patient for once, Christian. Um, Mate, what happened? Um, I know this went on, you know, it went on, um, went through the media. Something happened to you, Christian. Um, You got bitten by a snake. (laughs) Mate, can you run me through the story? Uh, I know I shouldn't be laughing at you, but you're one of those guys where crazy things just happen to you. Um, and mate, run me through what happened. Yeah, look, I was in a very, um, remote place. I was actually on holiday and I was away from any, I was several hours away from any kind of town and, uh, I was in a waterhole and I jumped out of the waterhole and I was standing there and a brown snake came up, bit me on the foot and then took off. 
And um, <laughs> it is funny because I didn't get help straight away because I didn't actually see the bite. I felt like a little bee sting. And uh, I looked down, I saw something slithering off. And I thought, did that little bugger just bite me? And I looked down and there was no puncture mark on my foot. It was nothing. And the pain had already gone. And I just sat down with my mate. We just looked for a bit at my foot. Like, did, did that actually happen? Because as you ED practitioners are very well aware, you get, you get fellas rocking up with stick bite, you know, where they step on a sharp stick and they see something rustling in the bushes and, you know, and then they're wasting your time in ED. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and I didn't want to be one of those guys. And uh, there was no puncture marks, no blood, nothing. And so I just kept walking. And within 10 or 15 minutes, I, we were hiking through a canyon. I got this frontal headache and I thought, oh, you know what? I think I'm just dehydrated, so I had to drink a water. And then we kept walking and uh, walking through this gorge. And my mate said I went real quiet after a while. And uh, he was ahead of me. And then I just felt my chest tighten up like I was having some sort of heart attack. And I know with Browns, 5% of those envenomated by a brown will have a <laughs> cardiac event. Um, and that's when I knew, oh, I've got this wrong. This is, I'm done for, this is the venom. And I called out to my mate. I said, Chia, look, it's the venom. It's the snake, it got me. And then I lost all my vision. I couldn't see anything. And he turned back. And then the next thing he saw was me getting completely naked on the spot. That flight or flight response was to get completely naked and then I, out, I dropped to the ground and he he managed to run back and catch me just before my head hit the rock and that was probably what saved me because you know when you get envenomated uh, with a brown it's neurotoxic but you also get this vicc venom induced coagulopathy something like that where you stop clotting anyway so i started convulsing he thought i was taking the piss and so i came to a few times and he didn't believe me and then eventually I, I became really diaphoretic and started dumping out sweat and that's uh, all over my body. I thought I was wetting myself and he said, no, no, you're just sweating everywhere. And by now a few tourists had walked by and they were stopping to watch and I thought it was because I was this naked man lying on a rock. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, apparently they told me later they, they thought they were watching someone die on the spot. I looked that unwell. But just as I collapsed, some people who from Vienna had walked past and they'd hired a satellite phone that morning and the only reason they were there is because they had a flat tire and so my mate was able to call the satellite phone call triple zero um and then i was conscious enough to kind of talk them through putting a compression bandage on my leg even though it was probably a bit too late by then and uh and then slowly the rangers and the ambos um i actually knew the ambulance officer because um i delivered a friend's baby so that was <laughs> and then um and then uh, the SES came in with a bunch of volunteers. And from the time he made that call to getting me out with such a quick response, it still took five hours to get me out of that canyon. And uh, when I got to the top, I was put in the back of an ambulance and an hour's journey to, to a clinic. But what had happened, everyone had put on a compression bandage. So the ranger came, he put on another bandage. The ambulance officers came, they put on another bandage. The SES came, they put on another bandage. And what they actually did, they tourniqueted my leg. Um, and so while I was very unwell initially, the only pain I had now was this excruciating pain in my left leg. And it was getting close to six hours with this tourniquet. My foot was black and uh, I was very worried because um, we know at six hours you can get that, you can lose a leg. Mm. Yeah, irreversible nerve damage. And so um, I really want them to take that bandage off my leg. And, and I think they were, for whatever reason, they were scared to, scared to let more venom into my body. 
And so I was yelling and screaming and they just kept putting more morphine and, and my blood pressure was going up to 200 on something and I couldn't, they couldn't keep me in the bed. And I was, I was probably yelling in, incomprehensible things with all the pain relief I'd had on board. Yeah. Um, they would draw up ketamine just to subdue me. And that's when they talked to the toxicologist and he said, oh, by the way, you've taken off that, that tourniquet, haven't you? And they, and they said, oh, no, we haven't. And so he, he, he was quite stern with them and they took it off and all the pain subsided. Um, and they put, all my, they put my blood in a glass tube because they didn't have any point of care testing in this remote clinic. And so they, what you do, you put your blood in a glass tube and you time it and you time it to see how long it takes to clot. It took over an hour for this blood to clot in the glass tube. And, uh, and the toxicologist, by the way, I mentored his kids um, in surfing in WA. And so uh, anyway, they, they gave me the antivenom. It was brown, clearly a brown symptoms I had. And they flew me to uh, a regional hospital, which had blood testing available, some pathology. And my, I should have brought out my blood test. I still got them. My APTT and my INR through the roof. It was, it was insane. And, uh, but within 48 hours, my blood stabilized. I was feeling great. I self-discharged and I went back to this, this, um, it was Karangini actually, yeah. Karangini Park. I went back there and enjoyed the rest of my week holiday there. And I got to thank the rangers and some of the people I was camping with for saving me. <laughs> I'll even attach the article. It's worth a read, um, that you, that was written about you because of that. Um, it was quite interesting around the world because the two people with the sat phone, they were top prosecutors in Vienna. <laughs> it must have been a slow news week in Australia because it did make the media. But yeah, God saved me out of that one for sure. Mate, you've made the media a few times now, Christian. Um, mate, that's crazy. And obviously the antivenom, did, you didn't have, um, I know through antivenom, I've given antivenom to patients before. They've had a, um, you know, like almost like a logic reaction from the antivenom. Dangerous things is the yeah. antivenom. Because it's from it's immunoglobulin from horses. They inject the horses with um, small amounts of venom until they build up immunity, and they take that immunoglobulin and they'll put it into you, right? So it's a high, it's a volatile substance to put into the human body, and the greatest risk is anaphylaxis. And so everyone was very worried. You need, to, I needed to be monitored, have adrenaline on hand, um, get ready to protect that airway if you lose it, um, and monitor that person very closely. And so that's one of the main reasons why I was sticking around in hospital, why um, I needed a lot of attention with that antivenom. And you also get 10 days later, you get something called serum sickness. And I got that. I got knocked around with that. You feel like you got the flu, even though you, you don't have temperatures or you just get these real muscle aches and feel just worthless and, and mm. uh, easily. Um, 10 days later. And where I am at the moment, a young fella got bitten by a death adder. And um, I was able to talk him through that and his partner through that um, local Aboriginal fella and just say, look, I've been through this. I know exactly what you're experiencing. Yeah. And we're going to give you this antivenom. We're going to watch out because, you know, it's a really dangerous substance. It's going to save your life. But, you know, this could, you know, potentially give you an anaphylactic reaction. Um, and by then he was already getting ptosis in his left eye. So we knew that the, the venom was seeping out. So the snake bites your leg. Um, Australian snakes only have to scratch you, which is why I didn't have puncture marks. Um, but because of snakes in Australia, their fangs are curved in such a way that a pair of socks can potentially um, prevent those fangs getting you. So me and my original friend here will both barefoot. <laughs> He'd been bitten, right? And the venom goes into your lymph system, yep. which is why you compress it. Not too tight, but just enough to squash the lymph system. 
but eventually it'll seep out into your bloodstream. And so this was already starting to happen, as we could see he had ptosis of the left eye, and he was starting to look, his GCS was starting to falter, but it was starting to drop a few points. Mm. So, um, so we had to get this anti-venom on board, we tested him, it came back, we are confident it was death adder. Um, and so you give the anti-venom, and then when the anti-venom is halfway through, so you've got the maximum amount of immunoglobulin in that patient's blood, that's when you take the bandage off. You eventually you have to take it off, right? Yep. And you, when that venom gets into the blood of the patient, you want it to get into the blood when there's the maximum amount of immunoglobulin in the blood from the antivenom. Yep. And so that's what we did, monitoring him closely. And interestingly, he spiked a temperature nearly up to 40 degrees. I think it was 39. Ooh. Um, and that was his, what we thought was his reaction to the antivenom. Um, but he had no other symptoms and we had him cardiac monitored. And then um, within a few hours, he was hemodynamically stable and we sent him to the ward um, to get repeat blood tests to make sure he's, um, he didn't get into any coagulopathies. Mate, interesting, Christian. Not only able to um, be the patient, but then also give a bit of advice to a patient um, being in your situation, mate. Sickness a bit later, yeah. Oh, I could I definitely identify with what he's going through. Oh, mate, <laughs> I, and, uh, I was just was laughing when you were saying that you know they're putting the bandage on and you're you know naked and uh, you know in and out of consciousness saying, Oh, no, 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 you've got to do it this way, mate. You know, after you've given me the morphine, can you top me up with a bit of ketamine too? Well, <laughs> it's good to know that uh, my response when I'm having a good time is to get naked, and also when I'm in a dangerous situation is to get naked, at least I'm consistent. I love it, Christian. I love it. Mate, um, final advice. We're going to wrap up, mate. Final advice for anyone wanting to, uh, you know, we sort of said it, but wanting to do um, remote medicine. Oh, you would love it. It's absolutely the best thing ever. Um, it's wild, adventurous. Um, you get a lot of autonomy. Um, I would say get yourself a few hats before you go out. And I think that if you're applying to do it, they put you through a whole bunch of courses anyway to try and give you some of those hats. Um, when you get out there, try and immerse yourself in whatever community you're in um, because you'll get a lot further with it and you'll enjoy it. Um, and the other thing I would say is, you know, I've been a single fella doing this and it's quite hard when you're on your own. You feel quite isolated. Um, if you can, go with, a, go with your family. You know, let your kids run the local kids or bring your partner and get them a job as well, um, you know, doing the, the local tradie crew or whatever. Or if you, if you are on your own, just be aware of the services that are available. You can call 24 hours to chat with someone or get your friends to give you a call every now and then because it can get quite isolating out there at times. Yeah, Christian, awesome, mate. Um, I was actually thinking of you while I was driving up the um, south coast through uh, Lennox, mate, just looking at the land there and... Just, you know, being a coastal boy, I thought about it the other day. Although I should tell you, I don't know, I hope my mum's not listening to this, but we do go surfing when the cyclone swells come through. Yeah. Around this time of year. Um, and there is a bit of uh, dodginess because of the crocs, but we do have this theory that crocs don't have dorsal fins and so they probably get tossed around by the big waves and then they've got to drag you all the way back to the river mouth, um, risk ambushed by the crocs. So we reckon it's all right. So we do go out. We do have some pretty good waves out here from time to time. Lovely, mate. You're getting me pumped up to surf. Um, one uh, thing, Benny, if that's all right. Um, okay. One book, if I can recommend one book. If you guys are keen on getting into um, you know, Aboriginal nursing medicine, 
get grab hold of this book. It's not a medical book, but it gives you a great understanding, introductory understanding into Aboriginal culture, um, especially in the top end. And it's called Why Warriors Lay Down and Die okay. by Rudgeton. And that, that is by far the best book I've ever read to give me more understanding of what I'm getting myself into. Done. I'll add that in the show notes, Christian, um, for people that want to have a list, look, read of that book as well. Um, mate, thanks for your time. Um, you are an absolute legend to talk to. Um, we've covered anything from rural, remote to crossbows to um, co- cross-cultural stuff to snake bites and envenomation. Um, it's been a pleasure. Cheers, Benny. a situation with a crossbow look it's the venom it's the snake it got me any advice given on the ed jam should not be taken over your local medical practitioner